lies in this devilish system. Society don't care about us, they trying to strip us of everything that belong to us. Even our history with no influence to count us out and not have to include us. But they can keep that any day. My people been led astray. No father at home to stay. No family around to pray. No leader to lead the way. In shambles and disarray, out of order in every way. We looking up to the dope boys to be something like the Pope Tours. Filled with no logical faith, it ain't got no morals. Preachers is pimping, no prophets, they ain't no hope to us. Sisters is loose and ungodly, they just some hoes to us. Believe the thing we used to be, we forgot. Now we running from cops, we used to be on the top. All the history in the world, but somehow they just forgot. We the cream with a crop, the best story you got. All my life been. Tell me I was nothing. Scripture said that was in fact. They taught me about Caesar Boje. They didn't tell me Christ was black. No, really, what's up with that, though? White man wasn't nothing till he snuck in through the back, though. Oh, no, we can't be perfect. We just rehearsing the acts, though. Judges 511. Will we make it to the kingdom? Only time will tell. We hid in prison houses while we in and out of county jails. They either try to put us in the coffin or we lie in cell. He start trying to knock me off this planet. You can try and fail. Only one way to the kingdom, shit, we might as well keep them all, pastors all telling lies, all people are spiritually broken, all dead inside, Christ died for everybody, now that's a lie, he need to go and read Romans 9, 4 and 5, cause that's the truth though, all people all turning to lawyers trying to find loopholes, but you know, the scriptures is standing tall like Manu Bowl, and who knows, the day that he's coming back, was lost, now we running back, Gods and we running camps, we teachers. If you won't take a stand, then go take a seat in the bleachers. Israel a fan, we can't let old Edom defeat us. They trying hard to delete us. The most high here to beseech us. So disregard what they say, cause we lead us.
Had to mature to accept the trials that was meant for me. I played out on these strings of fate like a symphony. I could not have formed from the dirt, destined to do his will. I pray my fortune be blessed, my spirit bear witness still standing. Life could be so demanding. Might have mapped it out, but it ain't quite how you planned it. And you're the struggles. Listen, wise counsel to my intuition. I pray for the reward, never been intuition. Might I mention, when I look at my life in retrospect, gratitude for his grace. Yeah, I'm grateful that he ain't took me yet. Gave me a chance to make it right. I gotta make it right. Romans 8, verse 29, predestinated book of life. Just trying to keep my name filled. I feel the end coming. I let my pen bleed through the page to feel the pain numbing. Info type of Israelite. And three trials of faith, but it's only two options. Life or death, know which one should I take? Countdown to the king come. Usher in the kingdom. Jerusalem, the land of liberty. Let freedom ring some. Some of all fears to feel like these trials taking me. I'm rooted in the truth. I tell the devil ain't no vacancy. Accept the things that you can't change. Change the things that you can't accept. Wisdom to know the difference and play my cards to my last breath. Blood in my veins, play the hand I was given. I'm blessed to be in that number. Feet of Jacob, God's children got it. Gave up my life for this mission. Now this repentance got us. My pen pushing, yeah, strapped in, started a trend, the world looking, world looking. I'm fast tracking, so I gotta keep it booking, when it catch wind, magic begins, the chef cooking, I'm stirring up the pot, I had to come with different flavors, sliding butter on your biscuit, give you something you can favor, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, put salt inside the recipe, commandments on tables, now it's bringing out the best in me, it's still amazing how far I came when I look back, my heritage written scripture, I'm fighting to take my book back, Kwame Asherala, awake to righteousness, that's the calling, Sin is sin, no difference is no matter what you call it. The sentence is the death penalty, hear the reaper calling. Keep the commandments and live and pray to keep from falling. Can't fall back on this foolery, ain't no saving time. The Lord is consistent, the devil knows the changing time. Time to change your mind, reclaim your heritage. Your heritage. You laying down with that woman, you gotta marry fit. Returning to our righteousness to rebuild our community. I wanna see my people rule the building blocks of unity. And never run from the challenges that we facing. That's why I live by the book, looking deep while I'm staying basic, yeah. You know this wicked society plays semantics. They push the devil's agenda. No wonder my people are frantic. Change your life. Gave up my life for this yeah. mission. Now that repentance got us. Change your life. Yeah. Change your life. Gave up my life for this mission. Now that repentance got us. Change your life.
Forefront Radio, where we discuss history, the Bible, the history of the Israelites, science, and other matters. Bring it out. The history of the blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans as it relates to the Bible. Who were you prior to slavery? Who were you prior to colonization? These answers and more can be seen and heard as you listen to the Forefront Radio. When I see these mass shootings in Orlando, in Las Vegas, in Texas, we've already talked about the Second Amendment, but the thing that just makes my head start spinning is they are always talked about as the largest mass shootings in U.S. history. Can I see a show of hands? How many people know about the East St. Louis Massacre of 1917? There are about 20 hands that went up in this group. How about the Arkansas Massacre of 1919? I think there are about 10, maybe five. How about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921? There are a few more hands that go up. In each of these incidents, African-American communities were attacked by white people. And in each of these incidents, homes were set on fire. Black people ran out of their homes. And white people shot them down to death. Why aren't these the worst mass shootings in U.S. history? This is an article from the St. Louis newspaper, Mob Kills Many Negroes. The dead in East St. Louis may reach 250. Talk about not paying attention or missing something you're not paying attention to. I have given this lecture so many times, and I never looked at this ad right here, which says the first bale of new cotton crop was sold at auction for $1,500 on the floor of the New York Cotton Exchange yesterday. This is 1917, and cotton is still king in the South. Negroes did not start the trouble. And what it says is outbreak caused by white men in automobiles shooting into Negro houses on Sunday night. That was the East St. Louis massacre. And these are just facts about how that happened. Essentially, black folks came up from deep in the South to start working factory jobs. And that whole notion of they are here for what's yours was put into play. And this is what resulted. On September 30th, 1919, in Arkansas, about 150 black people were in a church black people gathering together in groups. And the white police officers responded. Guns were pulled. Two police officers got shot. 
and 285 blacks were arrested. This was in the newspapers the next day, and I just want to read you a part of it. No innocent Negro has been arrested, and those of you who are at home and at work have no occasion to worry. All you have to do is to remain at work just as if nothing had happened. Stop talking, stay at home, go to work, don't worry. Within a week after September, or within a month after September 30th, 122 blacks had been charged with crimes ranging from murder to what was essentially terrorism. On November 5th, the first 12 had been convicted, given the death penalty, and so you know what happened after that, a whole bunch of guilty pleas, and they actually ended up having to let some people go because they, they, they had nothing to do with anything. I heard my parents talk about this when I was a child. My parents were born in 1926, one in Memphis, one in Nashville. And when, when, when I was born and their friends got together, they would talk about the thing that happened in Arkansas. And I, I, I later asked them, why, why didn't you tell us about that? And of course, they looked at me like I was crazy, saying, we didn't want to scare you. Because if you read the white newspapers, they'll say maybe 250 killed. If you read some of the black newspapers, say it's more like 800, and the bodies just got kicked into the Mississippi River. In 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma had one of the th most thriving black communities in America. The, the story was, or the saying was, that a dollar bill moved 26 times before it left the black community, meaning that the, you would pay the barber, who would pay the grocer, who would pay the guy who owned another business. That community was thriving, doing exactly what white America was saying. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Take care of yourselves. And it was thriving so much that the whites in Tulsa got angry. A black kid was arrested for allegedly patting a woman on the butt and he was gonna be lynched. Black folks from the Greenwood section of Tulsa, and that's what they called the black section, took their rifles and surrounded the jail and they wouldn't let this guy be lynched. And they paid for it because Greenwood was burned to the ground. Hundreds of structures, 34, 36 square blocks burned to the ground. The first example of air warfare in the continental United States because white people rented prop airplanes and dropped burning tar onto black homes so that the homes would be set on fire, so that people would run outside, so that they could be shot to death. This is part of our history. I'm not blaming anybody in this room for any of this. But when we have people saying, oh my God, 50 people got killed in Las Vegas. That is horrific. I'm not saying it's not. But I'm saying we have a very convenient memory where apparently these folks just don't matter. Anybody read this book? This book is about the investigation that essentially turned the Federal Department of Investigation into the FBI. This was J. Edgar Hoover's crowning moment before the FBI was formed. And it was about the Osage Indians from Oklahoma. They were moved off of their land constantly by white settlers, and they finally decided, you know what, let's go find a plot of land that is so rocky and so worthless, the white people will never want it, and then they'll leave us alone. And that's exactly what they did. 
Unfortunately, the land they found had huge oil deposits under it. And in the early 1920s, the Osage Indians became some of the richest people in America. And the whites in the area didn't like it. Here's what they did. A white man would marry an Osage woman, and then he would kill her, and he would inherit her part of the oil. A white woman would marry an Osage man, or excuse me, yes, an Osage man, and then she would poison him and kill him, and then she would inherit the land. In many instances, children were also killed because they were part of the inheritance chain. And the guy writing this book has said that in the interviews he did, there is not a surviving member of the Osage tribe that didn't lose at least one family member in this serial killing. And nobody in this room has ever heard about it, or very few people. And I'm not blaming any of us for not knowing this. I am saying our history has been stolen from us because not knowing about this lets us see ourselves and where we came from in a very different light. And knowing about this and knowing that this is how our country was built and this has a direct connection to how all of us ended up where we are today, all of a sudden it's not very comfortable. I hope you can see that and have at least some concept of the look on people's faces because maybe you understand what this is. Because the looks on those faces were from this event. And what I would like you to understand about the concept of lynching is that depending on where you want to start, the number starts shifting. But let's take from 1868, right as Reconstruction was kind of in full bloom, to 1966. So 98 years. Virtually 5,000 documented lynchings. We can't talk about the undocumented ones. 5,000 documented lynchings in that time period. This one was in Marion, Indiana in 1930. And what that means is there was an average of one lynching a week for a century. And for the prosecutors in the room, when you are asking yourselves, why is it that black communities have so much suspicion about the police? Why is it that there's so much hostility about the police? I am asking you to consider that since literally the time of the slave patrols, the narrative that is passed down in my community is if you were around somebody with a badge and a gun, be careful because you could end up dead for nothing. And we have history to prove it. You cannot take somebody out of a jail and take them to the main area of town, put a rope around their neck and hang them to death without law enforcement knowing about it. You can't do it. So either law enforcement was directly involved in the lynching or they stood by and watched it. And I'm asking you to consider that when you ask yourself, why is there such suspicion? Black people are not crazy. And, and in my view, we are not overly sensitive. I'm just asking you to consider, if you didn't know some of this history, Ask yourself about some of those foundational views. And I say prosecutors in the room, I'm not excusing the defense lawyers in the room. 
Because how many times has somebody come into one of your offices saying, the police did X, Y, and Z to me, and our reaction is, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, I understand, you're really upset. Well, that's not, that's not what you're charged with, so we'll deal with that later. All of us have done this, and I can't tell you how many times I did that and how humiliating that feels now. Do people know that blacks and Latinos were excluded from the Social Security Act? Can I see a quick show of hands? It wasn't written into the act. They just said domestic workers and farm workers and agricultural workers aren't included. Who do you think was doing those jobs? And this is the kind of advocacy that was going on. We are now almost a century past the Civil War. I call on every red-blooded white man to use any means to keep the niggers away from the polls. If you don't understand what that means, you are just plain dumb. This is United States Senator Theodore Bilbo from the state of Mississippi. You and I know what's the best way to keep the nigger from voting. You do it the night before the election. Think back to those figures from the late 1800s, 150,000 registered voters in Louisiana and then 5,000 registered voters two years later. Why do you think those people stopped voting? And in case you have any question, how come the Confederate flag made this comeback? 1948, Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrat Party. They adopted the Confederate flag as their symbol, and they said as clearly as they could, we stand for the segregation of the races. This is what the Confederate flag is about, folks, and there is no factual history to say otherwise. None. Do you realize that the government deliberately prevented black people from buying homes? From 1934 to 1968, the official FHA policy was redlining. A black person could not get a loan to buy a home in a white neighborhood, and they weren't giving loans to buy homes in black neighborhoods. This was the law of the United States from 1934 to 1968. And every economist in America will tell you today that the most critical aspect when it comes to net family wealth is home ownership. The 1944 GI Bill, affirmative action once again. The government said, we've had people that have gone across the ocean fighting the Nazis for freedom in America, and those men, are com those men and women are coming back. We're going to give them the ability to buy a home. We owe them that, unless you were black. And we fought in the same war and did the exact same things, and the GI Bill was not there for us. This is the government deliberately and on purpose making it so that black Americans will not advance economically. So when you're asking yourselves today, why haven't you done better? Why haven't you made something out of yourself? Why haven't you done this or that? Why have so many generations of your family in this poverty? I am not saying personal responsibility is thrown out the window, because it isn't. It is a key to anything in terms of us moving forward. I am saying, if you didn't know this history, I am asking you to reassess some of your views in terms of what the facts are. Brown versus the board, one of the most critical things for me personally, because it had a major impact on my personal education. 
Thurgood Marshall argued in the Supreme Court, separate but equal is rooted in the deep desire to keep people who were formerly slaves as near to that state as is possible. Think about separate but equal in that way. And think about these images. If you didn't live through it, you remember it or have seen it on television. This is what it took to get black kids into the same schoolroom as white kids. It took 89 years after the Civil War for the law, not society, but the law to say a black kid is human enough that will allow him or her to sit in the same classroom with white kids. That's our shared history. White supremacy is still in full bloom. And today, low poverty schools are schools with less than 25% of the kids on free lunch. Mid-low poverty, 25% to 50%. Mid-high poverty, 50% to 75%. High poverty, over 75% of the kids eligible for school lunch. This is what it is today. The gray are the whites and the blue are the blacks. And today, American public schools in most areas are more segregated than they were in 1954. And then we have this. Historical black universities and colleges are pioneers of school choice. They are living proof that when more options are provided to students, they are afforded greater access and greater quality. These schools were built because white folks wouldn't let us go to the same schools. And yet this is the narrative that is being put out there for people to understand what America is about. Oh, you have those black schools that you want to go to. What's the problem? There was never any problem with school segregation in America. That was a long time ago. It doesn't exist anymore. It allows us to keep up a facade. And now our president is saying, may have to cut off that funding to the historically black universities and colleges because it's based on race and we wouldn't want to be racist. That's Emmett Till before and that's Emmett Till after. And I'm showing you this picture because his mother insisted that he have an open casket. And in my view, in 1955, on a Sunday morning, there were white people all over America who woke up, had their coffee, and were reading their newspaper, and they saw that picture, and they said something like this. I know those colored people are causing problems, but I didn't sign up for that. And many people will say that picture is the picture that sparked the civil rights movement. I show you this picture of King because I want you to know that on June 5th of 1955, he was graduating from uh, his PhD. And six months later, on December 1st, Rosa Parks is arrested and the Montgomery bus boycott begins. Now, many people credit King as being the hero of the Montgomery bus boycott. I'm not saying that he didn't play an important role, but you need to understand he became the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which is the group that sponsored the boycott, essentially because the older black ministers in Montgomery said, uh, somebody's going to jail behind this. It ain't going to be us. Let's give it to the new guy. These are the heroes of a Montgomery bus boycott. One Martin Luther King. That's Rosa Parks. But we now know Rosa Parks was selected 
as the face of the Montgomery bus boycott. Because there were black women who were arrested, but they weren't perfect plaintiffs. So there was strategy behind this. The, the uh, Montgomery Improvement Association wanted to select a Negro that was not threatening to white people, that had a good church record and couldn't be attacked because they knew what was coming. All of these women got arrested on that bus. And all of these women were making their living, none of them with a high school degree. They're driving before the bus boycott, getting up at 7, 7.30 in the morning to make it to the white neighborhoods by 9 so they could clean white homes and make dinner for the white people they worked for and then make it back by riding the bus by like 5.36 and then try and take care of their own family. Now they're getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning because they've got to walk to the white neighborhoods and they're getting back at 8 or 9 o'clock at night because they've got to walk home from the white neighborhoods and then they're trying to take care of their families and then they get up and do it again for more than a year. And if my commute to work gets delayed by 15 minutes, I get pissed off. <laughs> and I will tell you one thing, when I get frustrated, when you get frustrated about, I'm trying my best and I don't feel like I'm making progress. This problem isn't going away. I'm knocking my head against the wall. What I would ask you to do is, what do you say to them? What words do you have for them? I'm tired. I'm frustrated. People are saying I'm a racist. People are saying I don't care. And that's really making me uncomfortable. It's really making me tired. Because I'm telling you what I do. Because I feel that exact same stuff. And then I look at them and say, I have no words for them. It's get back and try and figure it out. I want to show you this document because this is the victory document from the Montgomery bus boycott. This is the document that circulated in the black neighborhood Sunday night before the buses are segregated on Monday morning. And if you want to know how the black community understands that there is a significant slip between the law and living, this document is some of the saddest proof. The bus driver is in charge of the bus and has been instructed to obey the law. Assume he will cooperate in helping you occupy any vacant seat. Do not deliberately sit by a white person unless there is no other seat. What they're saying is, yeah, we may have won this law thing. Don't go get yourself killed because we got to live down here. In case of an incident, talk as little as possible and always in a quiet tone. For God's sake, don't make the white people upset because you know what's going to happen if you do that. Don't get up from your seat. Report all serious incidents to the bus driver. If another person is being molested, do not arise to go to his defense, but pray for the oppressor and use moral and spiritual force to carry on the struggle for justice. I don't know if I could live with that one. And the one that makes me saddest is the last one. If you feel you cannot take it, walk for another week or two. This is the victory document. And this statement from the citizens of Levittown, Pennsylvania in 1957, I think says it all. As moral, religious, and law-abiding citizens, we feel that we are unprejudiced and undiscriminating in our wish to keep our community a closed community. We are not bigots. We just don't want the coloreds living next door to us. White Supremacy.
1963, Medgar Evers gets killed. And in 1963, in September, those four, four girls got killed in this church bombing. And this is the girl that survived. And I wish you were close enough to see this picture. Because if you want to know what victims of terrorism look like, these are the people who are watching them pull the dead bodies of those four girls out of the church. Terrorism didn't start with the first World Trade Center or the Oklahoma City bombing or any other event. These were acts of terror. I show you this placard because I want you to remember this event because I'm going to talk about it again in just a few minutes. 1964, the three civil rights workers that go missing. One of them, the husband of a lawyer who currently works in Seattle. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead, and some of the old optimism was a little superficial, and now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rate, so to speak. It uh, didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. And now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something. And the question that I ask myself as I have learned this history is, is that a debt that we owe? So in 1988, Ronald Reagan got passed through Congress with almost no opposition a bill that paid $20,000 to every Japanese-American family that was interned during the Second World War. And that was an absolutely appropriate bill. Anybody that thinks that $20,000 to the Japanese-American families comes close to compensating them for what was taken from them is dreaming. But at least it was a recognition of a wrongdoing. If it's $20,000 for four years of internment? What is it for 246 years of slavery? And maybe that's why we don't want to deal with that question, because the answer is too enormous. 
and the answer requires us to take on responsibility for the sins of our forefathers. But this is the America that we are all living in. This is our shared history. So April 4th, 1968, in my hometown, that's what happens to King. And I will tell you something about the love affair with Martin Luther King. I firmly believe that this statement that he made in 1957 is the reason that many, many white Americans fell in love with Dr. King. We want to love our enemies, to be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. That is a very comforting message for a white supremacist. Yeah, you're going to push us, but you're not going to push too hard, and you're going to love us no matter what we do to you. About six months before he died, he said this, Urban riots are a special form of violence. They are not insurrections. The rioters are not seeking to seize territory or attain control of institutions. They are mainly intended to shock the white community. But most of all, alienated from society and knowing that society cherishes property above people, the rioters are shocking it by abusing property rights. Anybody ever heard that statement before? Nobody in this room raises their hand. We live in Martin Luther King County here in Seattle. And what I'm saying is that the Martin Luther King that we have been fed is a cartoon version of what the man truly thought and taught and how his thinking evolved over his life. As he said, those first gains in the civil rights movement, they were bargain basement rates because it didn't cost anybody anything. Is it really that much? Let me sit down at the lunch counter next to you. If I'm going to be spending money and giving it to the white person that owns the store, didn't cost anybody anything. King was killed April 4th, 1968. He was scheduled to give a speech on April 7, 1968 in a Memphis church before he left town. And the document that they found in his room that night at the Lorraine Motel, an unfinished speech, had this as the title. Why America May Go to Hell. And I wondered had he given this speech before he was killed, would we still be thinking about him in the same way? So this is what luck looks like. But I want to show you what luck looks like. And that's what luck looks like. Because this guy with the gangster lean, that's me in about 1962. And that's the home that I grew up in, in an all-black neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee. I did not grow up poor. As far as I knew, I never wanted for anything. I always had food. I always had a loving family. So I didn't consider myself poor. That's the house I grew up in. It was one or two bedrooms, one bathroom, a kitchen, and a den. And it was my father, my mother, me, and my two brothers, and my sister. So it was crowded. In 1968, a developer started to develop the area where we lived. And if you go to 5038 William Arnold Road in Memphis, Tennessee, today you will see a huge shopping center. There used to be that house. And when the shopping center development started, my dad went to everybody in the neighborhood. My dad was a high school principal, but an absolutely remarkable man and a, a 
rebel like you wouldn't believe. He went to everybody saying, let's sell our houses together. We will get more money if we deal with the developer together. But nobody else wanted to do it. So our house was literally the last house on this street. And my dad made a deal with the developer. I'm going to go find a house. You buy it for me. You can have this house. My parents were Baptist, as most blacks in the South were, but they were converted to Catholicism before they got married. They were rabid Catholics, and they wanted their children in Catholic school. I am a survivor of 16 straight years of Catholic education. That's another speech that we can talk about sometime later. The, white Catholic, the Catholic schools were in the white neighborhoods in Memphis, and my father decided I'm going to buy a house in one of these white neighborhoods. And we'd go and offer the asking price because we weren't paying for it. And houses, or contracts would get lost. Somebody else would sell the house. Oh, there was another agent that sold it, and we didn't know. My dad, the first time I heard the words grand jury was when my dad was going to one after we bought the house I'm about to show you because there was a grand jury investigation in Memphis because 1968 was when the FHA policy about redlining went by the wayside. So now this kind of stuff was illegal. Well, this is the house we moved into. Four bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms, an incredibly quiet neighborhood, each of my brothers and sisters and I having a place where we could go to study every night in a safe neighborhood. All of the stuff about an environment that lets kids be successful. That's what I had. And the way I had it was that we had uh, looked at this house. My dad went and offered the asking price, and we had some white friends of ours go half an hour later and offer less. But they were buying it for us. Law enforcement moved us into this house, and my parents and my family lived in this house until my mom died in 2004. This is what luck looks like. I am one of the luckiest men in America. And I don't consider that an insult or a slap. I have worked as hard as anybody in this room to accomplish whatever I've accomplished. But I have also been lucky. I was lucky that I had parents who were willing to stand up and risk their lives and the lives of their children to put us in a situation where we had a better chance to succeed. My father asked me years later, you know, we were, your mother and I were really concerned. We never knew if we made the right decision. We went through a lot when we moved into that house. And I'm like, Daddy, I can't believe you're saying this. This was the best example of personal courage that you could ever give to your children. When you hear the term white privilege, what I am asking of the white folks, our white colleagues in this room, is to please think about it in light of the history that we have just talked about. White privilege is not something that you go and get because you want it. White privilege is put on your back as a white person whether you want it or not. And even when you take it off, it will jump right back on your back. That's not your fault. That is our collective fault. That is the society that we have grown up in in America. So 
when you think about the concept of white privilege, what I'm asking you to think about is think about me because I am smart. I have worked my ass off, but I'm also lucky. I was not the smartest kid in my neighborhood, not by far, but virtually everybody I grew up with is dead or in prison. I'm lucky, and it's not something that we can be proud of or something that we can adhere to as we go forward. When we think about something like a bail application, Every prosecutor in this room in violent crimes has got to be thinking, if this person gets out on bail, and I've argued, and I haven't argued against it, and they kill somebody else, or they rape somebody else, or they hurt somebody else, I have some personal responsibility in that. And I am, I mean, you know, we can talk all about, well, it's the system, it's this or that. If you're a human being in the prosecutor's office with the prosecutors I've talked to across the country, you're going to have those feelings because you're a caring, thinking human being. What I would beg you to think about at the same time is if there are 10 people that are applying for bail and you know for a fact that one of them is going to kill somebody if they get out, are you willing to keep the other nine in custody to prevent the one from killing somebody? Because the one that kills somebody, you'll read about that failure in the newspaper, and you'll have to live with that. But the devastation that's done to the other nine, you'll never have to face that. When they lose their apartment because they haven't been able to report to their job, you'll never hear about that. When they have other problems, when you, when you lose your job, you lose your apartment, now you're homeless, you have family that you're trying to take care of, you'll never hear about that. The failures in something like the bail system can both be somebody that gets released and hurts somebody, and it can also be somebody that got held in custody that didn't need to be held there. This shit is hard, and it's complicated, and I'm asking nobody in this room try and make it any easier than it is. This is just a, uh, a comment by John Ehrlichman. Uh, if you haven't read this book, Dog Whistle Politics by Ian Henry Lopez, L-O-P-E-Z, it's a fantastic book about coded racial language in the history of America. This is Ehrlichman on tape. We knew we couldn't make it illegal or either to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And when you think about our response to the opiate addiction today, Oh my God, these are our children. We have got to do something. These are not criminals. These are our kids. And this is a medical issue and we have to treat it that way. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be sarcastic. I think that is a fantastic development. I'm just asking where was that compassion when the people looked different? Because nine out of 10 new opiate users over the last 10 years are white Americans. That's what our prison population looked like as we entered the Nixon years. Just over about 300,000 people in prison. That was not a mistake. That was not by accident. 
Some of us can think back to the 80s and 90s when federal judges were giving 50 and 60 and 70 year prison terms out in drug cases like it was ice cream and cake. Thankfully, in some districts across the country, including our own, the Western District of Washington, what's been happening is judges are very quietly bringing people back for resentencing and imposing sentences that are letting people out after they've served 15, 20, 25 years in prison. I want you to listen closely to this, and hopefully you'll be able to hear it. This is 1981, the year I graduated from law school, so it ain't that long ago, I guess. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a, as a statistician or a political scientist, or no, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out, and, and now y'all aren't quoting me. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew. You know. So I, any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. I just want to make sure that all of us working in this system understand. You know, you look at what group is most likely to be victims of crime? People of color. What group is most likely to be convicted of crimes? People of color. Maybe that just means all people of color are much more likely to commit crimes than white people. Maybe it means that our neighborhoods are so segregated that people commit crimes near where they live like they always have. Maybe it means a lot of things, but we better figure it out. Because if you don't like living in an America with 2.3 million people in prison, you're really not going to like it when it hits 5 million. Every person on this screen, at one point or another, supported mandatory minimum prison terms, harder and more serious kinds of consequences for crime. This is not a white thing or a black thing or a brown thing. It's an American thing. All of us are in this, whether we like it or not. All of us are wrapped up in this together. Now, there's some people that have said the fact that these folks 
were involved in some of these sentencing decisions shows that Michelle Alexander's whole example of racism in the criminal justice system is really not well taken. And I would just say that's kind of ridiculous. Like, since when can black people not be wrong? You now know something about the national anthem that according to hands being raised, virtually nobody in this room knew. I don't know if it makes you feel any differently about this guy or not, but how about this guy? Jackie Robinson is an American hero because Jackie Robinson took all the niggers and the spades and the threats and never retaliated. He was just nice and polite and he went through and he was a great athlete. We loved Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson is the only person who actually has a retired number, meaning that it's not just like some team retires it. The entire sport of Major League Baseball retired his number. No one in Major League Baseball wears number 42, except for one day in every season when everyone wears number 42. This is what Jackie Robinson had to say. As I write this 20 years later, I cannot stand and sing the national anthem. I cannot salute the flag. I know that I am a black man in a white world in 1972 and 47 at my birth in 1919. I know I never had it made. I wonder if people focused on that quote, if we would have the statue outside the baseball stadiums of Jackie Robinson. I wonder what the president of the United States would say about Jackie Robinson. There is an FBI report saying that groups like Black Lives Matter are hate groups, terrorist groups. We are headed back to the days of counter-intel pro. And I ask you to remember this. We have a name for people who get arrested 30 times in 12 years. It's called thug. What I'd ask you to remember is the Martin Luther King that we deify today, that wasn't what was happening when I was 11 years old and he got his brains blown out in Memphis, Tennessee. He was considered one of the most dangerous men in America. The FBI had a campaign trying to get him to commit suicide. He was considered to be an extremist, somebody that was preaching hate, even though what he was preaching was love everybody. That's how Martin Luther King was described back in those days. And I would ask you to go look at some of the documents describing Martin Luther King and then look at the newspaper articles where people are quoted describing the Black Lives Matter activists today. They are saying word for word the exact same thing. Charles Hamilton Houston this man was probably one of the two or three most brilliant lawyers of the last century. He served in World War I, then he went to Harvard Law School, where he was on the Law Review in 1921. How smart do you think he had to be in 1921 to make the Harvard Law Review? And let's remember as we went through history what was happening during that period of 1865 to 1921. One of the worst history periods of our history in terms of race relations. He later went on to become the Dean of Howard Law School and he was the person that devised the strategy that ended up in Brown versus the Board of Education. He won five cases in the U.S. Supreme Court under separate but equal. So when you're talking about ch challenging legal structures, 
Have any of us worked under something as hard as separate but equal? And the way he won these cases is he said, Mr. Murray wants to go to law school at the University of Maryland. And there is a black law school in Maryland, but it's not the equal of the University of Maryland. So he attacked the separate but equal law on the equal problem. And his strategy was, I will go to the University of Maryland and tell them, I know you don't want us in school with you guys, that's okay. Just build us a law school that's the same size as the University of Maryland Law School. And give us the exact same books that they use at the University of Maryland Law School. And hire us teachers that are paid the exact same as the University of Maryland Law School. And as he said, I will make their separate but equal so expensive that it will collapse in on itself. He is the person that came up with the original ideas about the doll study that was behind, used in Brown versus the Board. This man was brilliant. He went to South Carolina in the 30s with a handheld movie recorder or film recorder, no sound, and he took movies of segregated schools in the South. Schools that were just literally falling down shacks and then he would go to take a movie of the white school that was five miles away and it's a new building and everything. He was just brilliant in the way he tried to deal with this. He died in 1950. And people told him, you need to leave something for your son to understand what kind of work you did. This is part of the recording that he left for his then two-year-old son. And also, I regard what I am doing and my work as a lawyer, not as an end in itself, but simply as the means of a technician probing in the courts which are products of the existing system, how far the existing system will permit the exercise of freedom before it clamps down. And I have seen several instances as to the limitations on which the existing system as represented by its courts will go. We ain't going to fix this problem with a couple of seminars or a couple of discussions or by changing this policy or that policy, all those things are important, but we're gonna have to push further. We're gonna have to see how those things are working and then go further. We literally have no choice. So I'm just gonna throw out some things that I have heard people talking about. Holistic charge screening. Do you charge crimes because you can? Because the standard of probable cause is met? Because it looks like there is evidence that would satisfy a jury beyond a reasonable doubt? that the person committed the crime? Is that enough to decide to charge someone? Because one theory says, no, it's not. You should look at a whole lot of other factors and look as hard as you can to divert that person outside the criminal justice system before you ever bring a charge. Transparency. It's really hard to figure out exactly what you're doing unless you have somebody come in and take a look. Cyrus Vance in Manhattan, when he got elected, hired the Vera Institute to come in and do an examination of his office. And the stuff they came back with in terms of the racial disparities there was not pretty. But it let them have some data to understand what they were doing so they could address it. I'm not directing this just at the prosecutor's office. I'm directing this at DPD as well. You have statistics about what your lawyers are doing and how, and we need to look at those to understand what's do what you're doing.
What have you done to avoid asking for prison? In most states around the country, if you're going to terminate parental rights, you have to demonstrate to the court that you have made reasonable efforts to keep that child in the family unit before you terminate parental rights. What if there was a policy that said, before I can ask for a prison term, I have to write a memo to demonstrate that I have done everything I can to think of an alternative to prison for this case? And people may be saying, man, you just can't, that won't work, or you can't do that, or that would be really hard. And I'm saying, if you're not willing to start going further than where we've gone, then sit back and get ready, because we have seen what going down this path will bring us. A post-release plan. So for prosecutors and defense lawyers in the room, on the day of sentencing, is that when your job ends? When the prison door slams shut? If you're a prosecutor, have you now protected the community and you can like wash your hands and say that's a win? As a defense lawyer, if you get probation or something else, have you now won? Shouldn't all of us be thinking about what is the plan when this person comes back? Because 95% of the people in the criminal justice system are coming back. And I'm just suggesting that nobody's job ends on the day of sentencing. Can you change your approach after you get a plea? And I'm talking to both prosecutors and defense lawyers. I understand the adversary system, it is what it is. I'm not even advocating that it be changed, but I have heard prosecutors come to me and say, you know, I've stood up at a sentencing and I'm hearing all of this stuff about a defendant that makes me go, hey, that's really kind of interesting, but I never heard it before. I don't know when, as defense lawyers, we decide to go to prosecutors and start talking to them about alternatives, but I'm suggesting that we have that obligation. That is on us, not on the prosecutors. And what I'm suggesting to the prosecutors is that if defense lawyers aren't coming to you with that kind of information, you need to be asking for it. And when you get it, you then need to be trying to figure out, either with the defense lawyer or in your own office, what kind of result can we come up with that might be just a little different? Have you considered consulting with groups run by and advocating for formerly incarcerated people? Those groups are all over the country and they are doing amazing things. There's a man named Glenn Martin that runs an organization called Just Leadership. He served six years in New York prison for armed robbery. He now runs an organization that has a multi-million dollar budget. He has been, he was the leader in the Close Rikers movement in New York City. He is an incredibly brilliant young man. And I sat in a corporate boardroom with corporate executives listening to Glenn Martin talk. And at the end of this session, there's one of them who's like looking at his feet and you could just tell he was, he was not happy. And I walked over to him and said, what's the problem? And he said to me, we have a policy at our company that anyone convicted of a violent crime cannot be considered for a job. And he said, I would hire that guy in a minute, but I can't because of the way we have thought about formerly incarcerated people. There are formerly incarcerated people in America who are responsible, tax-paying people who want to see the criminal justice system work and who want their communities to be safe. And they may have some input for us that we don't know as lawyers. I swear to God, we actually don't know everything. 
Look at your practices in bail and what's called debtor's prison, uh, jailing people for fines and fees. I don't know if you saw it, but in South Carolina, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court there invalidated 20,000 warrants, just wiped them off the books because people were being uh, given fines and fees without lawyers, or they were being jailed by judges who were saying essentially pay up or go to jail. And finally, is there anybody in this room who knows how many collateral consequences there are in the state of Washington for being convicted of a felony? Nobody. Nobody knows that. And I didn't know it either. I practiced law here for 36 years. And I didn't know that. And then I read about a case in New York City where some lawyers started investigating that. There are 50,000 restrictions on people convicted of a crime in America, both state and federal. And so would it be too hard for somebody in DPD or the prosecutor's office, make an assignment, go find out what kind of restrictions there are for people with a felony conviction so that we can understand that. Do you really want somebody with a felony conviction not able to be a plumber or a barber? Because you can't get licenses to do those jobs in some states. And if you don't know what the restrictions are in the state of Washington, the prosecutors can't consider that in their charging or resolution decisions, and the defense lawyers can't bring that up to the prosecutors to ask them to consider it. So here's where I'm going to end. Once again, Thank you guys for hanging with me. This is almost like, it's like a jinx. I have ended these presentations with this slide every single time, and I can't not do it. In 2008, I'm at Schrader, Goldmark, and Bender practicing law, and a friend of mine from law school calls me up, and he says, hey, Jeff, I haven't seen you in a long time. Will you do me a favor? And I said, sure. So one of the takeaways is when your law school friend calls you up and says, will you do me a favor, ask what it is. <laughs> Because he said, I want you to go down to Guantanamo Bay and represent Amar al-Baluchi. He's the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and he's one of five people charged with carrying out the 9-11 attacks. And I gulped. And they say, like, your life can pass in front of you in, like, a second. It wasn't a second, but I imagined my law firm's going to hate me. I'll never get another case. I won't be able to practice law. I'm terrified of flying. And then I heard somebody saying, sure, I'll do it. And it was me saying that. Best decision I ever made. I went to New York with a bunch of other lawyers, and we spent an entire day in a training by psychiatrists and psychologists who said, you may think you know how to deal with people who have experienced trauma. You have never dealt with someone that has been systematically tortured by the CIA and you have no clue what you're getting into. And we spent the entire day listening to this information so that by 4.30, 4.45, I just wanted to go somewhere and start drinking heavily. A lawyer, and uh, Lorenda, I think you will know, it was Jody English, a lawyer from Indiana stood up and put in this, or put up this video, and she said, this is an example of the most human behavior that I have ever seen in my entire life. And I truly commend it to you. So this is a video of an actual safari, a camera safari in South Africa.
They're crouching. She's crouching. And what it's really about uh -oh. is the feeling of hopelessness when a problem is so big that you can't get your arms around it. She's going for him. She's going for him. She got him. Because that is what you call hopeless. Drag him out. They're dragging them out. And you're trying to fight the problem and you think you've at least got your arms around it and then it gets even worse. There's a crocodile If you can't see the croc clearly, you'll see him in a couple of seconds. Look at this. There is no objective reason to believe that this can end any way but badly for that calf. There is no hope here. And you see how big the croc is now. The lines of one. The lines of one? the lines of one. Have they? Because mom and dad, water buffalo, actually went and got the entire herd. The entire herd. And the guide, the guy talking with a South African accident, has been guiding for 25 years. He said he had never seen behavior like this before. I realize that we are in an adversary system. And I realize that the roles of prosecutors and defense lawyers are different. And the roles of judges are even different than that. We can do this better than we're doing it now. And sometimes it takes one person to step out and do something just to demonstrate this is possible. Whoa. Just one person like that. He swatted at him, he kicked at him. He's kicking at him, look. And you know, when you do it, it kind of feels good. Look, is he strutting going back? He's like, get the fuck out of here. Don't even come back. And so one person gives an example, but the group as a whole, our system as a whole, is hard to move. And sometimes you've got to be a little more dramatic in what you're willing to try to let people know you're serious about it. Like this. Ooh. And now a lot of other people get involved. You got the lion on him, Ren. Remember the calf, because it was hopeless. The calf's still alive. Yeah, it's trying to get away. It's standing up. The woman stood up and she said, the reason that I'm telling you uh, that this is the most human behavior that I have ever seen is that this problem was huge and there was no rational hope of actually changing it 
and they tried to change it anyway. Please have conversations with, among, and between each other. I swear to God we can do this better than what we're doing now, and thank you so much for listening. This is dedicated to the Israelites across the world who don't know who you are. Let's talk about these Israelite habits, you dig? Israelite challenge. Y'all, then I'm black bald, bliggity black, blackity black, stack tall. Dead Mike and Axe Saul had that fall. They lack tact and facts, but packed gall. You sin like adults in a few things. Food screws and who's woo, Jew truth stings. Bootstraps use two new shoestrings to troop through all the hoops that your roof brings. Hopes rolling with yellow bricks, nor fellowships with hoes, scarecrows, nor totos, vipers, vice types, liars, price bribers, lions, striped tigers, Zions like Niger. Real dark, sharp sharks ain't so smart. Steel sparks, tin parts, mark no heart. Written stanzas, he supplanted, showed the soul wrong. We're not in Kansas anymore, we wanna go home. The forefront. Stolen across the ocean is potent that we was golden. We chosen, we people motion. Awoken, no need of folges. Orthopedic, the bones is awoken. We not in Kansas, we not in Kansas. Life is bananas. These cops rocking blue pajamas. You throw your hands up the cancer, still in their mind. They body slam us. God's waking up and these heathen can't stand it. Four chapters a day, keep the heathens away. Apocalypse, revelation, we snapping a day. Like Thanos and snapbacks, and we taking this rap back. No crackers, no flapjacks, no Becky, no ginger snaps. Secrets of wisdom twofold, we pure it in gold. Not by power of might, but the Lord is my sword. We go across the world and the sea and the stars to tell him who you are. You the chosen people, black dog. Black excellence, black habits, this black medicine. Yeah, black God, black King, black Christ. Black God, black King, black Christ. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah. Black God, Black King, Black Christ. Black God, Black King, Black Christ. These some perilous times. What y'all don't feel the vibes? I want it black on black. Just minus the crimes. We teaching the people, telling those who are sick, your conditions aren't fine. We are called to hold the line. Don't know your own worth, hating one another. That's worth. When we started from the bottom, really come from the dirt. God said we're a holy people, was just me separated. The majority like the sand is heathens, yeah, they hate it. Giving them living water, they spirits rejuvenating. All these other books with the Bible, you could never made it. The scriptures talk about all facts like black angels. No shapes, but these liars are obtuse, the triangles. The gene, the 12, born with it. Hebrew excellence, don't matter what it is. Natural talent is so effortless. Those in the spirit of God will only understand. I'm leaning on the Lord. Like bikes with a kickstand. Mahala. Black excellence. Black habits. This black medicine. Yeah. Black 
God, black king, black Christ. Black God, black king, black Christ. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Black God, black king, black Christ. Black God, black king, black Christ. And we still 
found out we the truth, dude, yeah I know they see us up through YouTube So strip clean, friends down, don't be so rude, child Carry laws on our shoulder God's gonna be the shoulder pad Crying out and we sparing out Sparing out so we know they mad Tis the season, eat them Time to taste of God's rap Christ gonna bathe in your blood Like some bubble bath We got it stinking Now they smell the feet Cause they know when these shoes come off They gotta wear these sneaks We done ran long enough And now we out the street We at the end of the road We tried everything Huh? You up the head and now you play the victim You said I never sold a slave or benefit the riches We in the hood trying to figure out like what's for dinner Now what they gon' say We don't care about what they say or what they do Cause we the prophets and we salute We standing strong, oh yeah we do We keep the law, oh yeah we do We don't care about what they say or what they do Cause we the prophets and we salute we stand strong, oh yeah we do We keep the law, oh yeah we do Free like they made us, but I switched the game up. The black 
Never trust my enemies, I know what you did to me Locked in loaded KJV, Revelations 1 and 3 Reading through these mysteries, all praises, now we got the keys Unlocking hope and giving hope to those that seek the Holy Ghost My holy folks gon' hold me down, exhorting on a daily basis Prepare for temptation, crappy counsel just around the way Snooze, you lose, you lose, you snooze awaken, oh you slugger I see brothers killing brothers, ministers, women raising monsters That's why we crying loud on you busters Scripping, ripping through the trenches in the seas of the ghetto my people had a lower state, the prophets here to motivate Isaiah 61 and 1, grinding up these broken hearts, reforming.